I used to look forward to Lent. It was this annual invitation to slow down, to enter into a, a sacred solemnity, this different key of reflection and contemplation. In normal years, in the, the before times, this was a season I looked forward to, a season that I learned to love because of its intensity, because of the beauty of its simplicity. I loved the music that we sang here at the cathedral in Lent, the thick, unaccompanied harmonies of Orthodox chant. Lent was an invitation to think seriously about stuff that mattered, and I loved that. And then the world changed. For a year, we held our breaths, we masked up, and we stopped engaging our normal pursuits. The restaurants and the gyms and the bars and the coffee shops all shut down. We no longer went out to plays and movies. We stopped going to the opera, the symphony, or the ballet. Offices shut down, churches, museums, libraries, schools. Our lives migrated onto Zoom. Essential workers stood on the front lines of a contagion that ravaged our families and our communities. Some of us came down with the virus. Many died. Not the whole world, except eight people and two of every animal, as in Noah's flood. We didn't experience quite that level of divine genocide. But it's hard not to identify with those people. It's hard not to think about us who remain as being a little bit like Noah's family, as we find them in the reading that we heard this morning from Genesis, stuck there on the top of Mount Ararat, while the waters of a 40-day world-destroying flood slowly begin to recede. They wait in that ark, Genesis says, for 150 days, 150 days after the 40 days and 40 nights of the rain. During that 150 days, the text says, Noah starts sending out these, like, these advance parties. First he sends out a raven, then he sends out a dove. Both of those birds return to the ark because there's nowhere safe for them to land. And finally, many days later, Noah sends the dove out again and this time it returns to him with a freshly plucked olive branch in its mouth, an unmistakable sign that life has once again returned to the earth. That's how Noah's family knows that it's safe, finally, to leave their ark, take off their flood masks, whatever those look like, and start rebuilding their world. Noah's ark is actually kind of a gruesome story if you look beyond the, the cute depictions of animals trooping up the gangplank that's painted on the walls of so many Sunday school classrooms, including the one I grew up in. We sometimes think about Noah's Ark as a, as a story for kids, right? It, because it illustrates so beautifully all these animals. But it's actually a kind of a nasty story about a very vindictive God who is so angry at the world's sin that God is willing to wipe out everything that exists on earth, all the people, all the animals, all the birds, all the fish, all the plant life. It's like the original cancel culture. That's how some commentators talk about it. A God who is so angry at everything that everyone is canceled, save a righteous few. And flood myths, like the Noah story in the book of Genesis, are found in just about every ancient culture we know about, right? African tribes tell versions of this story. Ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs contain some version of this story. The Epic of Gilgamesh tells a myth that's very similar to the book of Genesis in lots of its details. Native American tribes tell flood stories. There are ancient Chinese, Indian, Polynesian, Irish, Welsh, and Norse versions. The idea of a, of a world-decimating flood, which is often seen as punishment from the gods for human folly, the fantasy of starting over fresh, wiping the slate clean, 
and recreating the world from the ground up. I mean, all you had to do was play SimCity like I did in the early 90s or the mid-2000s to understand like the visceral pleasure of building yourself a great city and then destroying it with a virtual flood so you could start everything over. I used to do that on my computer screen when I was 10 years old. Our ancient ancestors did it around the campfire. There's something, I mean, kind of un un uncomfortably satisfying about worldwide destruction and devastation when it's in the abstract or when it's in the computer game. Not so pleasant if you're living through it. And so somewhere along the line, these ancient Israelites had to, had to square their ancient myths about a God who was willing to destroy the entire world and start over with their new and emerging understanding of a God who was their God, right? The God of Israel, the great I am, the God who was, who was being revealed to them in sacred scripture, in worship, in their hymns, and in their prayers. And this, this God, as they were gradually coming to understand, was not a God of divine punishment and wrath, as their ancestors had believed. No, these later, these later interpreters maintained in the, the great refrain of Hebrew scripture, the God of Israel was unlike any of the other gods in the ancient Near East. Their God was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and kindness. Lots of their stories reflected this new understanding of, of God, a God who could decide to punish but chose instead to save. And so at some point along the line, they took this ancient myth they had about the world's utter destruction. They didn't change actually that much about it, but they added this little coda at the end of it, almost, almost as if God has learned God's lesson by the end of the story. And after a year's worth of destruction and devastation, God finally promises not again ever to behave in such a childlike, vindictive way. One way to read the story of Noah is like a story about how God grows up. Or from another perspective, how, how people begin to grow up in their understanding of God. In the Noah story at the end, God says, I have set my bow in the clouds. That rainbow is going to be a sign of the covenant between me and the entire earth, the waters will never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. That kind of destruction will not happen again. And so the rainbow becomes, for this ancient culture, for these ancient people, a sign of that promise, a symbol of that covenant. Their God, they said, was not a God of anger and destruction. Instead, they said, our God is a God of mercy. Our God is a God of compassion. And this beautiful little coda about an everlasting covenant, the rainbow of a promise, I suspect, is an attempt to, to wring a little bit of grace from a story about a worldwide massacre. You see, it turns out there's, there's no such thing as like the, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament in the way that you sometimes hear Christians talking about it, right? As if, the, as if the God of Hebrew scripture is this old, antiquated, primitive old man with a beard in the sky who wrecks havoc, the God of wrath, and that that understanding gets superseded by Jesus' message about a God of love. That's, a, that's a, frankly, a dangerously anti-Semitic way of reading the Bible, for one thing. It also robs the ancient stories of Hebrew scripture of their power. It, it like, you know, regulate, regulates them to the dustbin of ancient myths and primitive ways of thinking. I think what we see instead is writers in the New Testament, like whoever wrote this bizarre first letter of Peter, the second reading that we heard this morning, Guys like that who draw on these ancient stories, stories like the story of Noah and the flood, 
in order to make a point about, in, in the case of First Peter, about the, the radical equality of baptism, which in this writer's understanding is, is kind of like salvation that comes through water. And this writer says, like, you too know this story. You have gone through the flood. You've experienced utter devastation of a different kind, right? Maybe not a worldwide flood like the Genesis story, but you've experienced other kinds of utter devastation and catastrophe. First Peter was written, the first few lines of the letter tell us, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The exiles of the dispersion. That's who this letter was originally written to. They're scattered on the very edges of the known world, right? The, sort of like the fringes of the empire. So this writer is writing to a remnant, right? He's writing to the ones left behind, the ones who have lost their homelands, picked up everything, and started their lives over in the wilderness, right? He's writing to like illegal immigrants and political refugees and to the dreamers and the darers of an ancient era who risked incredible danger in order to start their lives over in a different place, carrying their traditions, their religion on their backs and in their hearts, because they probably couldn't bring very much with them. And the writer of First Peter says, you already know this story. You know what it feels like when the world as you knew it ended overnight, and you had to figure out how to start again with nothing. You've already been building this new community of exiles, the ones who have gone through the flood and have survived it. So the writer of First Peter says, remember where you came from, right? This is a letter written to a community that is undergoing some kind of profound suffering. And this writer wants to make sure that they know, right? He wants to make sure that they remember your God is the one who keeps promises. Your God has never let you down before, and he's not going to now. Your God is the one who promised never to destroy, right? You've got that rainbow in the sky to remind you. You have been baptized. You've already gone down into the waters of the flood. You're already living in the new reality of the, the kingdom of the dispersion, the new dispensation, the, the first fruits of the new covenant. This writer says you don't have anything to be afraid of because God is not done. God is not finished with you yet. Live your lives with confidence, he says, even when the, when the night seems dark, even when fear and uncertainty seem to dog at your every step. God has promised to be with you and God keeps every promise. I wasn't sure that a day would come when I would get up into this pulpit and see faces in the pews again. I, I knew that that would probably happen, but there were days where I thought, God, is that ever gonna, is that ever gonna come back? Is the world ever gonna feel normal again? So this morning, I feel a little bit like Noah, frank, frank, frankly, like tentatively opening up this little window in the thick protective walls of the ark and like sending this little dove out, like, is it safe? <laughs> is it safe for me to come out? I mean, doesn't it feel this, little, this morning like we're kind of the remnant, the 25 or so of us experimenting for the first time, what it feels like, what it means to bring bodies back into this cathedral, back into this, this ark? I mean, there's a reason that the ceiling of this, of this building looks like it's the bottom of a boat, right? That's a very deliberate form of Christian architecture. It gives this space its name. This is the nave. That's Latin. The Latin word is novice. That's where we get the word navy from. It means boat, right? The ancient idea of church architecture is that when you come and sit in the nave of this cathedral, you are sitting in an upside-down boat. And it's meant to evoke the ark, right? We are in the ark of God, the ark that saves us from the flood. 
And we are the remnant this morning, right? The ones who, the ones who have come back, the ones who remain, the ones who are returning to the desolate places and are ready to start rebuilding once again. And let's not kid ourselves. That work will not be easy. Because we've just gone through a year-long Lent. We renounced not candy and alcohol and chocolate. Some of that stuff, actually, I think we may be overindulged in a little bit during quarantine, to be honest. I know I did. My pants did not fit quite well this morning. But no, we, we renounced other things, didn't we? For like a year, we renounced things that went much deeper and were much more real. We renounced family celebrations and milestones. We renounced weddings. We postponed funerals. We gave up our loved ones, right? We sent them out into this dangerous world, and some of them will not return. Three million deaths worldwide. I mean, you talk about worldwide devastation. The devastation of this flood has been staggering. I don't believe that God caused it. I think that's really important for us to remember in light of this Noah story, right? In light of our, our race's perpetual search for meaning, our need to, you know, make, make meaning out of something, our need to assign blame, right? God is not responsible for this destruction. The coda of the Noah story makes that very clear. God does not use the tools of worldwide destruction and death in order to teach human beings a lesson. That is not the kind of God we serve. And still we look for meaning, don't we? We have this need to tell ourselves stories around the campfire to explain the tragedy that has happened to us. For a year, we gave up our lives and we lived and we sort of stumbled our way into a new reality. And we know, right, there's no going back to the way things used to be. There's only forward. There's only building again. There's only finding a new way to tell these old stories, only the, the chance to do something different on the other side of worldwide disaster. And the promises of the God of Israel, the promises of the God of Jesus Christ, the promise of baptism, is that there is nothing that I can experience in this life. There is no destruction so dire, there's no devastation so grim, that it means that God has abandoned me, right? God's promises hold true. So maybe this year, Lent is not just an invitation to, you know, renounce more stuff on top of a year's worth of renunciation. Maybe it's an invitation to, you know, open up a little window in the ark and send out a raven or two, right? Watch for signs of life. Watch for signs of promises being renewed. We are so ready to leave the ark, right? I'm like, I'm ready to leave the ark and like enter into the world again. And that day's not here yet, right? It might take a little while. I have the, a whole different appreciation for, you know, 40 days and 40 nights of the Genesis, Genesis flood, but then this other number that I never noticed before, right? The, the horrible number of this family sitting in that ark on top of a mountain, waiting for the smoke to clear for 150 days, three times longer than the flood itself was. And they just sat there waiting for the water to recede so that they could finally go outside. I mean, they must have been so ready for it. The cabin fever on that ark must have been intense. And God asked them to wait a little bit longer. But he gave them this little, you know, this little invitation. Start sending out your ravens. Start sending out your doves, right? Watch for the signs. Watch for the dry land as it begins to emerge. Watch for the seeds taking root. Watch them sprouting these tentative little leaves. And finally, that most glorious sign, watch for the dove that comes back to you 
with the most beautiful thing you can imagine, an olive branch clutched in her beak. She has found dry land. The next time she goes out, she will not come back. The next time she goes out, she's going to make herself a home. And then the rainbow appears in the clouds, and all the colors of the visible spectrum are shimmering in the sunlight as this little family, this tiny little remnant, tentatively scared, makes their way out of the ark and into the world, the beautiful, shining new world that God has made. And it's the old world with all of its problems, all of its challenges, all of its pain, all of its glory. Our world has not been destroyed, not entirely. It is time for us to begin again.